Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at Third and NS Exchange, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm very pleased to be joined today um, in a very sunny shed. So apologies in advance for any strange light effects on, uh, as regards me. Uh, joined in a very uh, sunny shed by Bonnie Venter. So anyone who's ever heard one of these or seen one of these before will know I don't really want to introduce the person. I much prefer it if they get the chance to introduce themselves. So Bonnie, over to you. Introduce yourself to us, please. Uh Okay, uh, firstly, hi, Alex. Um, I am really absolutely thrilled to be in the shed this morning. Um, so yes, I'm Bonnie Fenter. Um, basically, so I'm a teaching associate at the University of Bristol, where I'm also doing my PhD with the sense of health, law and society. And my um, PhD basically focuses on the relationship between the law and the living donor pathway. So how people actually interact with the law while they're being assessed to become living donors. And I kind of look at this from, well, I'm examining it from the kind of experience of the donors, the healthcare professionals involved in the process and the policymakers that have been involved with actually setting up the guidelines. Great. No, well, I mean, that, I, I, I mean, just how far through are you? I mean, just as a matter of interest in terms of your, your PhD. Oh, <laughs> a stressful question. Um, I'm in my final year, so I'm at that part where everything makes sense and nothing makes sense. Um, but overall, it is quite, it's it's nice to see it come to everything you've been working on, has been floating in the air, and all of a sudden, it just makes sense. Um, so yes, final year at the moment. And does that mean, for instance, you've done done all the interviews that you, you need to do, or are you still gathering data? I mean, just as a matter of interest. Yes, yes. So I'm very excited to say I am... I finished my data collection in, ooh, towards the end of 2021. Um, and I was really just so fortunate in terms of, I every time I talk about my project, I really have to thank you, the people that participated. So got to interview 27 living donors um, across both sides. So specified donors and unspecified, and then six healthcare professionals and three policymakers. Policymakers is a very wide definition that I'm using for them though. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to sort of hear, I mean, all about all of the research, but one one reason I wanted to get you into the shed was really to think a bit about kind of mental capacity and donation. So, you know, and, and both kind of mental capacity in terms of the donor, but then also, and I think we'll come on to what we've been doing, you and I have been to, doing together with Antonia Cronin, thinking a bit about, well, the mental capacity of the prospective person and prospective recipient. So if we could just sort of start with kind of mental capacity and the donor um, and just sort of, you know, your experiences in terms of, I mean, I know it's not as it were the central focus of your research, but I know you've been encountering it in terms of some of the interviews and some of the thoughts you've been having. So can you just sort of, for people who don't know anything about this area, just give us an idea of, you know, how capacity plays out if we're thinking about someone who's a prospective uh, living organ, uh, living donor. Yes, absolutely. So, yes, as you said, it's kind of not the focus of my project. Um, the reason why is I went in with this idea of I wanted to focus on donors who had decision-making capacity and donors who didn't. But I soon realized that I'd rather like to kind of develop a proper understanding of the assessment pathway first. So I wanted to understand that before I jump into the more the nitty-gritty detail, as it were. Um, but I've, once again, just been lucky so many exciting things have come up while we've spoken about this and um, so in terms of donors who lack capacity there has not been a case in the UK thus far of a living donor who does not have capacity who acted 
as yeah who acted as a living donor um but the so the living donation framework and this is kind of i guess a focus of my research is it's, it's rather complex it has a multitude of legal resources um it's primary it's secondary it's it's just all over the place to be honest um it's one of the reasons why i'm interested in it but um the one of the main i'd say like guiding documents in this area is the human tissue authorities code of practice so the human tissue authority is involved because they of course have to approve any living donor in the country um well, when I'm saying country as well, my research focuses on England and Wales, just by the way. Um, then, um, so according to the professional guidance then, and this is just actually in line with the Mental Capacity Act, when they, if they were to be approached with a donor who does not have decision-making capacity, then they would have to go the route of approaching the Court of Protection under um, Section 16 of the of the. Um, of the Mental Capacity Act. Um, interestingly, the, the guidelines are actually, I think in some ways, um, there's a lot to be said about it just, the guidelines doesn't go into detail of the process that you actually have to follow if this happens in a clinical setting. It just refers the clinicians back to that code of practice, basically. And they say each trust should basically um, get their own legal advice if they were to be in the situation, but contact the human tissue authority immediately. So keeping all that in mind, um, one of the clinicians that I spoke to brought up a really fascinating case. Um, so she told me about a patient that they had. Um, so it, on the recipient side, though, so they have a recipient waiting to get an organ or while waiting to get a kidney. And he comes to them with the, the suggestion of perhaps using his child as a living donor, his child as an adult. Um, they are in their 30s. Um, unfortunately, they had a severe brain injury and they are completely dependent of care. And the donor asks, could they perhaps use his child? Uh, the recipient, sorry, the recipient asks, could they perhaps use his child um, as a potential donor? And he, he comes with the typical arguments that we've seen in ReY and MC. That's about, of course, rather bone marrow donation. But the kind of idea of it would be in his child's best interest to be alive because you know she gets so much joy of having him around so emotionally she kind of needs him um and in in this case it was it was just the clinician said explicitly when she went to her colleagues they just said no they didn't even further consider it and I think the clinician in this case um, spoke to the transplant coordinator, which, of course, went to the guidelines and realized that, you know, that when we have this, we should go to the court of protection or, you know, if we want to consider it. And the clinician made the point of saying, you know, a bit of frustration, I guess. Well, why didn't we do this? We have this route. Why don't we do it? It's not to say the answer would have been diff different, but it's rather the case of developing a better understanding of why we make these decisions. Yeah. Yes, that was one fascinating one. That's completely fascinating. And it's just, it's kind of, I mean, at one level, it's just fascinating just to sort of, it was almost, well, I don't I, unthinking is not really the quite the right word. Instinctive, no. I mean, you know, when why why is this just not on the, on the table? And I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know whether the clinician you were talking to was able to give any sense or why the instinctiveness of the no, you know, was it a kind of moral queasiness about exploiting you know, uh, uh, an, an adult with impaired decision-making capacity, or was it, I mean, I just don't, you know, did you get us, I don't know whether you got a sense of what it was, which was making them go, hell, or was it just, oh gosh, this is all too complicated? I think it's a bit of the latter, and and maybe as well, a bit of a, well, I always think of cases like this, it's a bit of 
well, it's just the way we've always done it. So, you know, we kind of continue to act this way without questioning it. And then, yes, also just, I think maybe a bit uncertainty. Um, In the case as well, I know the mother was involved and there was also the feeling that mom would probably say no, you know, so why waste the time to start the process anyway? But at the same time, yes, there was just this this no. And it seems to be, I I spoke to other clinicians after that, it seems to just be the case that this is not even being considered. And I've, after um, after those interviews, also got in touch with the Human Tissue Authority because I was quite interested to hear, have they ever been approached? Since the, the guidelines, if you read it kind of tells you that well they should be your first contact if you do have this case and they also confirm they've never been approached with any of these sort of cases well that's particularly interesting because otherwise it might have been that you happen to come across a clinician in the one trust in the country which is you know has a no instinct but actually if more to the point if the if the human tissue authority is meant to be your first protocol and they've never been approached bearing in mind the mental capacity act has been in force since 2007 that's quite a striking data point, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, as I, say, I'm, I am excited by it. Um, I, I, I would like to explore it further in the future. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and I think it. I mean, you flagged, and some people may or may not be familiar with them. That the case of Y and the case of NC, you know, which, which, as you say, were about bone marrow and not about organs. I wonder, just, just before we turn to look at the recipient side, could you just? Explain very briefly why, you know, in those cases, there seem to, you know, there's an art, there is the undoubtedly an argument which can be put forward that there is, you know, donation can actually be in somebody's best interest, not just the best interest of, or the interest of the recipient. So just sort of walk us through for people who aren't familiar with the logic there about why that was considered to be acceptable. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one thing that I guess still comes to mind with comparing these two cases is it's the risk, I guess, involved. Um, I guess the risk with bone marrow donation versus living kidney donation, it's quite different. I'd say the procedure is different. And I think we also have quite still a bit of, or this came out of my data, and I know there's other like more research from clinicians um, done in terms of how living donation, people are still a bit skeptical about it, even though it's routine, even though it's done, you will still get clinicians that aren't completely for it. So I guess we have to separate the risk first of the two. Um, but I guess in those, in both those cases, they were quite similar, weren't they? The only difference is Rewire was pre-MCA, and of course, like MC was more recent, I think 2020. Um, so yeah, so that's yeah, but, I mean, definitely more recent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's a big, like, I guess, separation between them. But facts, I think, were quite similar. So both, we once again had a child. And I can't remember in MC, it was the mother that required um, the bone marrow. I can't remember in RY. But um, it's it was kind of the same argument. So they weren't getting a match, basically. And um, they came to the court, once again, used best interest to say that, and similar to this case, it would be um, in their own emotional and psychological benefits for the person that they share a really good relationship with to be kept alive. And I know in both cases also, um, it came up as a bit of altruism came in to it, of course, which is another thing that I enjoy um, in organ donation. But yes, I know that came in and they kind of, I guess with both of the the donors as it were in those cases and they brought up the idea of their their personalities gave you the idea of that you know they were quite altruistic they would want to do this and from what they could understand from the cases um they yes they would also benefit from keeping the patient alive yeah yeah i mean there's there's some just fascinating stuff to be unpacked there especially when you might think about are we 
how far white might we be constructing a decision you know to sort of you know is it uh, but which we i think we'll pause because i'm really interested in making sure we also spend a bit of time thinking about the other side of the equation so in other words where the potential recipient doesn't have capacity to make relevant decisions and that brings us to the paper that, that you led on, which has just appeared in the Journal of Medical Ethics. And can you sort of just walk us through some of the things, well, what motivated the paper? And then just sort of walk us through some of the, the things which arise where it looks like um, it, the person in question may not have capacity to, to make relevant decisions. Yes, absolutely happy to. Um, so I, I guess what, what started off the paper was the William Burden case, which I will just add again, and I'm, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm saying the whole time I'm excited, but organ donation just really gets me excited. Um, but with the Burden case, it was, so just to give a bit of context, um, once again, scrolling through Twitter, of course, where all these things happen. Um, and I, this was, I think towards the end of February, I actually saw, and this was when, I'll get into the details of the case now, but it, it all started off with this appeal for a living donor, didn't it? And then we realized that a case is coming in front of the Court of Protection, which is going to be based on whether a kidney transplant would be in William's best interests. Um, I was once again fortunate enough to observe the whole case with the Open Justice Project. So, um, yes, it was it, it spanned over four days, got to see everything. But just a brief summary then is that William was at the time of the case, and this was February last year, was 17 years old. Um, he was diagnosed with, ooh, once again, I'm not a clinician, but I, I feel like we've been working with this for some, and of course we've learned so much from Antonia and, and Dominic with this. Um, so he had uh, steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome, um, which apparently makes him difficult to transplant in the first place. And on top of that, William also had um, severe to moderate learning disabilities, a diagnosis of autistic spectrum condition, and just in general, there was evidence that he had behavioral disturbances as well. And this case came in front of the Court of Protection as a question of whether it would be in his best interest to um, receive a kidney transplant. But I guess we soon, soon learned as the case developed that um, was a lot more nuanced than just this kidney transplant, because I guess from a clinical perspective, it became really difficult in terms of if he were to get a transplant, um, there was a likelihood that due to his diagnosis, that he could maybe require plasma exchange. And that would be really complex for a patient like William. Um, and also we had evidence that spoke about the fact that he often kind of disturbed his lines, which would make it really difficult post-transplant. So we're faced with these, these two things that would make his treatment difficult. Um, and then I guess the question also came up about if he were to be transplanted and he would require plasma exchange and also just post-transplant care, of course, then he would need to be sedated and ventilated. Um, case started off once again, sort of six weeks sedation and ventilation, and towards the end, we were heading towards two weeks sedation and ventilation. Um, so what's really, the, the case just touches on, on so many interesting aspects, and I think what we have been focusing on mostly is three key aspects. Um, so we've been looking at whether, or we've been examining the role of the court of protection in these sorts of cases, which we'll get to in a moment. I think the second thing is, um, 
more, I guess, from Antonio and Dominic's side, but we've been looking at the kind of like lack of empirical data of how patients in the past, whether they have had like equitable access to transplants. And there's also, of course, the great paper from Rebecca Tom on this um, in Transplants National. Um, I, it's in Equitable Access. I can't remember the full full title, but it's a, it's a very good springboard for, for this whole discussion. Um, and the third thing is, and I guess this is also this is where I saw a really nice overlap in between the work I've been doing. And this is it's just the complex legal framework, isn't it? So it's really a complex legal and regulatory framework guiding these kind of decisions in a already kind of complex medical field. So, yes. So, yes, that's basically a summary. Yeah, I mean, just on the court of protection side, I've talked for one second and I want to really sort of throw the ball back to you thinking about the, in particular, the regulatory framework and the kind of the lack of guidance. So I think one thing which certainly struck me as a, I wasn't involved in the case, but one thing which really struck me was why exactly was the case before the court of protection? Because at that point, as you identified, there was no actual donor identified. His mother was fighting a, a very a very strong fight and actually ultimately successful fight to find a donor. So at one level, it's it's a little odd to think, well, why is the Court of Protection being asked to think about, is it in his best interest to have an organ donation when actually there's no one out there and the court can't magic someone up? I mean, in, in reality, what the court was really doing was thinking, if we find a donor, would it be in his best interest to go through that? And, and as we talk about in the article, that might sound like it's kind of dancing on the heads of pins, but actually there's quite... There's actually a rather important kind of corollary to that, which is people shouldn't read that decision, the William Verdon decision, as saying, if you're having difficulty finding a donor for someone with impaired decision-making capacity, go to the Court of Protection as your place to find a donor. You can't. And we sort of, in a bit of the, a bit of the paper I spent probably some of the bit, bit more time on, was kind of thrashing out why that isn't the case. But just to sort of throw the ball back to you, um, and that it's, it was so interesting, the work you, that you've just been describing beforehand in relation to, you know, the guidance around donors and then the work you've led on in terms of thinking about, well, you know, I'm a clinician thinking about somebody who might have impaired decision making capacity about their access to the list. Just sort of walk us through what's there, what isn't there and, and sort of, you know, where should we be going in that regard? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think what's really important there is, I guess what we're working towards with this paper, what we, we've been thinking about is just, there's an absolute lack of a just like go-to thing for your day-to-day -day decision making, which is just easy to consult, which gives you a structured way to make these kind of decisions. So that's, I guess, our big goal. Um, and why we're coming from that is is because this, the, uh, I mean, I, I often feel with these things, like, we obviously have legal backgrounds. You're just saying then I was a bit like, oh, how many stuff is there to consult? Um, and then you're thinking about a clinician in a really like, you know, in, in a busy working context, which has to go through this. So I think in terms of that, so in terms of just the law, we of course have the, well, sorry enough, the Medical Capacity Act. Um, and then we've got the Equality Act, we've got the Human Rights Act. Just moving down to that, there's a lot of policies as well going on here. So loads of stuff from, NHSBT, and I'm saying loads of stuff, there's loads of like policies, but they're not directly focusing on this idea of when we're dealing with inequitable access and whether somebody, well, when somebody does not have capacity. Um, so there's quite a lot of policies um, from NHSBT side, same from the British Transplantation Society side, 
course, we have international instruments in this area as well, the CRPD. And um, then we also have some, I guess, I don't want to say to a point less important, but we also have guidance from the World Health Organization, which do focus, or well, they do focus in some way, they at least say, you know, we should not be engaging with anti-discriminatory practices. Um, and I guess if you, yeah, if you look at that framework as a whole, it has two purposes. So one is to guide us through the, of course, the informed consent side of it, um, which once again, we do have guidance, especially from NHSBT, but it's very general guidance. And it does take into consideration Montgomery or that, you know, it has been incorporated into it, but it doesn't tell us like step to step, uh, well, step by step, how to approach this. Um, and then the second part of, I guess, what we would say is the purpose of this framework is to basically make sure that we're not engaging in anti-discriminatory anti-discriminatory practices um, and and I guess something that's really important here just to mention is that with the paper I like working hypothesis is is just the fact that we're we're not saying that clinicians are at all you know um consciously discriminating at patients it's rather just a case of well you know there's just there's this lack and it could happen due to the complex framework and and we really just want to avoid that from happening yeah, and I think one thing, certainly from, from having been involved in, in the paper led on by Rebecca Tom as well, is one factor is that people, and in a way, I was thinking about it when you were talking about the prospective donor, people just go, well, this person doesn't have decision-making capacity, therefore it's a no, or I've got impaired decision-making capacity. And you're then thinking through, well, hang on a minute, why is that relevant? If it's that there's a condition which is giving rise to the lack of capacity to make the decision about, for instance, consenting to the implant, you know, to the, to the surgical procedure, if that condition actually means that the person's not clinically indicated for transplant, that's relevant. But if the condition's got nothing to do with their lack of capacity, then it's, as it were, completely irrelevant. And I, I think certainly to my mind one of the things which is striking is unless you've got something which really clearly helps people think that through i think there is it seems to me there is definitely at least a risk that people inadvertently say well we're not putting this person forward because they've got impaired decision making capacity without really thinking through well how is that relevant i mean i wonder if that chimes with your your thinking as well yes yes absolutely and i i think but we can also highlight here, yes, it's not just the case in the UK. We also, I think we draw on a paper from the US, from, from Chen, I think, and it, it coincides with Rebecca's research um, you were involved with as well. It's, I guess, from, it seems from the clinical side, there's this assumption that when somebody does lack decision-making capacity, they can have poorer outcomes or they can struggle more to basically, you know, cope with the post-transplant kind of regime of taking anti-rejection medications, et cetera. But I, I think Tom's paper highlights this, doesn't she? She says that, well, firstly, there's there's quite weak evidence to support these ideas. Um, so absolutely kind of chimes with the same thing. I And I think it is in Tom's paper where she also mentions, or where you all mentioned the whole idea of that we should just assume from the start that somebody wants a transplant and shouldn't let this idea of whether they have decision-making capacity or not come into play immediately. So push that aside for first and just assess the patient. Oh, there's so much more to explore and unpack, but Bonnie, I normally try and keep these to about 20 minutes and I've, I've allowed us to stray a few minutes over because this has been so rich. <laughs> 
thank you very, very much indeed for your time. And I'm going to put a link to the to the to the paper we've just been discussing, and also to some other other relevant papers in in the page accompanying this this video. So thank you again for your time. Bonnie. Oh, perfect. Oh, th thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been great.